Welcome to Rise Seattle Podcast, a podcast about Seattle, the people, their stories, and Seattle's future. Here's your hosts, Phil Greeley and Tyler Davis-Jones. All right. How's it going, Phil? Tyler, things are good. The big dark has set in here in Seattle. It but, has. Uh, I wanted to sleep in until like 8 a.m. today, but we had to be here recording the studio. I know. The rains are a part of, part of our life now, so yes, we just deal true. with it. Yep. So what's on the show? Well, today I'm really excited. Uh, we've got my friend Clint Gresham. He's the former long snapper for the Seattle Seahawks, number 49, which I have one of your jerseys. Uh, and yeah. Super Bowl champ. Super Bowl champion. Are you wearing the ring right now, Clint? I was wearing it, but I took it off for that. Okay, okay. It gets yeah. a little heavy. It gets too heavy. Okay. Anyways. I never. Uh, yeah, so a little bit about Clint. Clint is, uh, well, he is a life lover. This is directly from your website, so I'm just going to go ahead and... Uh, uh, repeat your bio. Uh, he's a former punk band drummer, which I want to hear more about that. That sounds pretty interesting. Uh, recovering perfectionist, which makes sense. That's how you actually got into the NFL. Uh, and breakfast burritos are his love language, um, which I'm I'm also a big fan of the breakfast burrito. Uh, he is an ENFJ. He is also uh, an avid Christian, which he has talked about his faith um, using his platform as a as a NFL uh, star and former Super Bowl champ. Um, and then he is also um, once made Will Ferrell laugh, which I want to hear that story as well. So, Clint, thank you so much for joining us, man. We really appreciate it and uh, excited about the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. So we know that you're a long snapper. Uh, you were a long snapper for the Seahawks, but uh, tell us where you're from, where you live, uh, how long you were in Seattle. Yeah, I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is South Texas, and um, spent my career in college. I went to Oklahoma for a year and was not a great experience there. Ended up transferring to TCU and had an incredible run when I was there. I signed with the Saints right out of college, um, which is a pretty uh, incredible story of just seeing things work out uh, when we trust our gut. Um, so I go to New Orleans and it was a really, really challenging season of my life where uh, I had things grown in me that I really needed. And after a few months there in New Orleans, find my way up to Seattle. And uh, man, we sure made seven and nine look pretty good. <laughs> and uh, man, just got to be a part of some really incredible years. And right at the beginning of Coach Carroll, just every single day facilitating an environment of success and creating a culture of winning even when we weren't winning mm. we, we believed that we were winners even though we weren't <laughs> wow and it's just powerful you know how we see ourselves is is the most important battle that we will fight throughout our entire lives it's never one that you arrive at and it's one that you have to consistently fight for mm. But I, I believe that my time with the Seahawks and being under a guy like Pete Carroll, uh, it absolutely changed the trajectory of my life because I was not somebody who really carried a lot of confidence. I mean, I, I battled a lot of insecurities and feelings of self-doubt like anybody who's honest with themselves would probably agree with. Uh, but my time with the Seahawks really helped me 
view myself in a new light. And because of that, was able to be a part of a lot of great years in Seattle. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So your time with the Seahawks was during probably their most epic run in franchise history. And we want to hear about the Super Bowl specifically, but outside of the Super Bowl, what what were some of your fondest memories specifically of being a part of that team? Oh, man. Um, fondest memories of being with the team, probably uh, a champion the year that we went to the Super Bowl and was filming that during training camp uh, of the 2013 season, was pouring tons of money into this project and interviewing guys on the team. It was me, Russell Wilson, Russell Kuhn, Chris Maragos, uh, Sherman Smith, and then Rocky Seto. Those last two guys were a couple of coaches. And, uh, and real, real quick, Clint, you, you said uh, that's making of a champion. Is that correct? Your, your internet cut out just for a second there. So that was the making yes. of the champion project. Yeah, we're in the middle of filming this video project about what it means to not only be a champion on the field, but be a champion off the field, because we believe that um, to only focus on your performance on the field is going to create fragile masculinity mm. and an ego that um, is, is not going to help you go very far. Um, anybody can be great at one thing. It takes an incredible individual to not only be awesome at your job, but be a great father, be somebody who's involved in your community, somebody who's a great husband or wife or whatever it is. Um, and so that's what that video was exploring and talked a lot about identity because that's a huge part of my story is uh, identity and understanding where that comes from. And usually people put their identity in the thing that gives them the greatest sense of significance, hmm. um, which is something that is, is a trap most of the time. Like for my entire life, I was a football player. And then one day I get a call from John Schneider and he says, we're moving on. Mm. And now I'm not a football player. And now I have to figure out who the heck am I really? Mm. And um, so anyways, that's all kind of what that video was about. And uh, after several months of, or several weeks of filming and competing with a guy for, uh, for the starting long snapping position, a guy who was definitely better than me with way more athletic and and honestly way better looking <laughs> i mean he he was better all around um i get a call from uh, uh from the seahawks during that time and they say hey we want to extend your contract and we ended up posting that video and in the first week i think it had eighty thousand views and now it's up to like eight hundred thousand views and wow. and that's just happened to be the year that we won the world championship. And back in August, we felt like we were supposed to call it the making of a champion. And so it was mm -hmm. kind of the serendipitous moment of, uh, man, when you do the right thing, uh, good things come to you. Mm. That's yeah. awesome. That's great. We'll definitely put that uh, video in the show notes for sure. So uh, take us back. Uh, I know you're, you're talking about, you know, your, your favorite experiences, uh, regarding making of a champion, but take us back when you were in the Super Bowl. It's 2014. What was that like? Uh, just paint the picture for us because I'm sure that was a lifelong dream right there. Um, it was a lifelong dream like having a condo on the moon is a lifelong dream. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's coming, it's, man. That's coming at some come point. Come on, man. Yeah. Some of these days. Take us to Mars, Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean, it was, it was such a, 
and you know, you watch it on TV and it feels larger than life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I you know, like every kid wants to play in the NFL, but it's one of those things that like, you never really think that'll happen. And then it happens and you're like, how the heck did I get here? I mean, it was such a bizarre couple of weeks. And, um, I think the thing that was most surprising to me during Super Bowl week is like the week, everything leading up to the game was insane. I mean, I was getting tons of text messages and uh, I mean, it was just a wild experience. But when you actually get to the game, it's very underwhelming Mm. um, because it gets hyped up so, so much because you grew up watching it and on TV, it feels larger than life. And it is because there's 120 million people watching. But when you get to the game, I mean, most of the people that are actually there at the game aren't like huge fans of either direction. Like it's Mm -hmm. not like playing at CenturyLink, which is the most incredible stadium to play in where it's so loud all the time. I mean, when you get there, it's very quiet and it feels produced and it feels like a show. And Mm. uh, so it was kind of just a weird moment and you're seeing celebrities walk around and I'm like getting stretched and I see Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad walk past me and I'm like, dude, show man <laughs> jesse, jesse. <laughs> oh got, man that's great i got to shake hands with queen latifah which was amazing wow uh, <laughs> that's she's crazy like walking around down there but yeah it's kind of just a bizarre moment oh my gosh was that the same time you made will ferrell laugh no so will uh that was the same year uh i was i, I don't remember which game it was but i was warming up uh a couple hours before the game and I'm running down the field, just stretching my legs out, and some guy that I'd never seen before, he's got a hat on low, like pretends to hand the ball off to me. So, like, well, this is weird. I guess I'll go along with it. And so I pretend to take the hand off, and then I look back because I knew he was going to throw it to me. And as I look back, I realize Will Ferrell is about to throw a football to me. <laughs> it's like the most random thing in the world. And so, like, we start talking and it was weird because he knew who I was and, uh, I obviously knew who he was. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, he asked me the question of like, so how long do you think, or his son asked me a question, how far do you think you could snap a football? And I made this comment. I was like, I think if I were to take you and ball you up really tight, I could probably snap you like 10 yards. (laughs) And Will thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And so like, that's my, uh, one of my most favorite moments is that Will, thought that I was funny. Yeah. It's not even funny of a joke. Maybe he was just being nice to me, but <laughs> I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. It's a yeah. bullet point on the resume for sure. That is very true. Absolutely. Okay, hey, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you mentioned Pete Carroll and the environment that he created, which I think is yeah. sort of a tra- can be a transition into your work now as a speaker and as uh, an author, I think. But is that for real? Like we hear about win forever. We see Mr. Positivity all the time. It's sometimes it's hard to believe that it's real. Um, but what is it like to play for him? Is, is it true that he's like, it doesn't seem like he has a negative bone in his body. Um, and what is that? How does that seep into the culture of the team? Man, even when he fired me, I was like, gosh, you're so positive. I still like you right now. (laughs) But he's that's who he is, man. Like he's so dedicated and committed to his philosophy that there's nothing else that's bigger than that. Mm. 
And I mean, when we started off the 2015 season and we're two and four and everyone's like, the Seahawks are done. They'll never win another game. And then all of a sudden we end up going to the playoffs that year. Um, it's a testament to his discipline with how he speaks. And I think that was the big takeaway for me is like, the truth is, is that life and death are in the power of our tongues. Mm. The way that we speak is either going to breathe life into something or it's going to breathe death into something. Mm. And it's our tendency to, we want attention. We want people to have compassion on us. We want people to empathize with our pain and our situations so what that means is that we start to have a tendency to complain because it gives us attention. Mm. And what we don't realize is that when we start to complain, it creates a, an environment and culture of lack and depression and anxiety. And that's never fun to work in. Mm. And he was so positive and like every single time we're going to be doing the same thing on Monday and the same thing on Wednesday. And, Saturday morning, we're going to watch funny videos and um, just because he believes in that and, and it works. And wow. even if it's a lie, even if it's a lie, like, hey, you're the best team in the world. If you can get your, your people to believe that, uh, that, that they are who you, you say they are, mm. I mean, you're going to be able to do anything. And so he was a profound leader. Would you say the team and the players, is there like, unified buy-in to that at least on the no. teams you played with okay no definitely not gotcha. i mean so guys uh, roll their eyes or kind of you know yeah yeah just because you got a room full of uh type a personalities that um that's yeah people right are suspicious but in and Pete would even talk about that he would say hey if like if you're thinking otherwise keep your mouth shut mm-hmm. like shut up because how you speak is going to affect this world that we're trying to create. Um, and that, I mean, you know, most guys understand that and, uh, and would keep their mouths shut. Um, but, you know, gossip is going to be everywhere. So there's always going to be people who are talking about the boss and saying what they don't like about it because it's an easy thing to bond over mm-hmm. of uh, shared frustration. Mm. And it takes a very powerful and disciplined individual to say, I'm not going to bond with you and create a sense of connection around the things that hurt or are frustrating. I'm actually going to speak in such a way that's going to help this organization go further. Mm. And, and it's discipline. So you have to get your need for connection and, and intimacy, so to speak, apart from your career and apart from your job, because on your job, like you're trying to accomplish things and you can't be trying to uh, bring everybody else down because you're desperate for connection. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. So how is that carried over in in your day-to-day now um, as an author, as a speaker? Like, do you wake up as a, as, a, as a husband? Are you waking up and being like, talking to your wife, like you're the best wife in the world. I love you. You know, what, what, is, what does that look like, I guess, every day? Are you guys having to huddle up and telling yourself in the mirror, like, I'm the best writer, I'm the best speaker, or what what does that actually translate to? Uh, I mean, I'm a big believer of of Mm self-talk and and affirmations and discipline. I mean, we have have between 50,000 and 80,000 thoughts a day in our brain, and 80% of those are negative. 
because it's our brain's job to keep us alive, which means it's our brain's job to identify threats before anything else. Mm. And so when we're identifying threats and trying to uh, see potential hazards on the forefront, we go towards the negative. If, if I have got nine healthy fingers and I broke one of them, uh, you know, all of my attention is going to go onto that one finger that is not healthy. Mm. And so, um, I think that, uh, yeah, we, we have to take care of the garden of our mind because whatever we feed it is going to grow. If you are in this cycle of complaining and focusing on your problems because you're trying to get attention and for somebody who has struggled with almost like this victim mentality for a long time, like this was, this was a major hurdle for me realizing that if I don't get out of this type of, um, cycle of thinking, then I'm never going to accomplish what I really do want to accomplish in my life. And so, uh, like I have a time in the morning where it's just time for me and I spend about 45 minutes and, uh, going through some affirmation cards that I created, reading my Bible, um, just spending some time in prayer and meditation. And, uh, that sets me up for the rest of my day. Um, and then another big thing I would say is for any type of leader who is trying to accomplish anything, you've got to be so disciplined with, um, not allowing medicators of any kind to come in, mm. whether that be drugs or alcohol or food, or maybe even going to a Seahawks game. Like I talk, you know, I just wrote this book and I talk a lot about how being a fan of any sports team is a wonderful way for us to s escape the reality of our worlds. Mm. And I'm all for cheering for our team. But if you're cheering for your team, as a way of running from your pain, um, we need a more courageous approach to our pain. And so getting rid of the medicators in our lives so that we can fully present ourselves to the world is going to be the bravest and most powerful thing that we can do. Mm. Oh, that's good. When it comes to self-talk, surely like after that initial 45 minutes in the morning and you go about your day, negative thoughts come into your mind, right? Like you're human. Yeah. So what, what practically walk us through what, you, what, how would you combat that kind of, if, if you can recognize that negativity seeping in? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I process it and then I put it behind me. Mm. Um, and I don't think that, you know, a negative, if, if we make our negative thoughts, the boogeyman, we're constantly going to be playing defense our entire life. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Instead of making our thoughts our identity uh, and making them bigger than they are, recognize that um, they're going to come and go and almost see them as this ticker thing that's going by and kind of step back a little bit emotionally from them. And instead of saying, like, I'm so angry right now, mm -hmm. saying something like in your mind, and this takes a ton of discipline and takes a ton of practice of I'm noticing that I'm angry. Mm. And just that simple switch is powerful. Yeah. Just pra and, practicing uh, mindfulness sounds like practicing yeah. mindfulness. Yeah. It's, it's that whole thing. Yeah. Well, that uh, kind of reminds me almost of like with going back to the Seahawks, if someone's having a season ending ACL surgery, it's a process, right? It's not like a surgery or a, 
career ending thing. It's like a, yeah, they're going through, they're going to, they have a thing with their knee. And so, yeah, the words, words you choose are powerful, I think. And I think mm-hmm. that's where I see the connection to what you learned maybe under, under coach Carroll. Yeah, exactly. Hey, real quick, Phil, what's your favorite kind of beer? IPA, baby. IPA. Is that because of the high IBUs or what's, what's your reason behind that? It's bitter, it's hoppy, it's juicy, high alcohol content. Ooh, yeah, that's nice. Well, did you know that here at Rise Seattle, one of our favorite places to go and get a beer is this place called Growler Guys. It's on Lake City Way. And the cool thing about Growler Guys is you can walk in and you can literally taste up to 60 beers on tap. They'll tell you all about it. They'll say, hey, we've got 15 IPAs and here's, you know, give me your your taste profile and we're going to give you a recommendation, but you can literally try them all. Um, and we love these guys so much that we want, uh, them to, we wanted them to sponsor our podcast. So, uh, do us a favor, head over to growler guys, get yourself a pint, get yourself a growler or a crowler. Uh, we actually interviewed Kelly, one of the owners, uh, a while back and, uh, yeah, just thanks so much for supporting rice Seattle and supporting local business. Growler guys, all your favorite beers under one roof. So take us back. Uh, you, you wrote a very raw, uh, honest reflection of what it was like to be fired by John Schneider and then having a conversation with Pete. Um, can you just take us back to that day and and maybe maybe even walk us through what how you reached this place of like self-discipline and mindfulness and not just like punching the wall and screaming, or maybe you did do that same thing. Like what, what, what was that like the, the day that, uh, that, 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 that happened? Uh, it was jarring at first. I mean, I, I'm in the middle of a golf lesson cause I'm terrible at golf. Me and too. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I've got two years left on my contract and I see that John Schneider is calling me in March. And as soon as I see that, I'm thinking this is not a good sign. Mm. Uh, so I let it go to voicemail. I iced him because <laughs> if he's gonna if he's gonna fire me, it's gonna be on my turn. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I you know we have this three minute conversation of him telling me thank you and wish you all the best, and we hang up and I drive home and I let my wife know and it was it was hard. Man, it hurt so bad and. You know, our entire lives, we are made to believe, especially in the sports world, that uh, sports are our identity. Mm. They are our family. They're the thing that give us significance and love. And, you know, we hear this phrase get thrown around a lot that football is family. And that's that is the most offensive thing in the world to me. Football is not family. Uh, Within the players, it's a brotherhood. Absolutely. All of the guys that I played with, those guys are like brothers to me and I would do anything for. But to to say that an organization, a company whose main goal is to uh, is to create more income for their owner uh, and then say that it's a family whose main goal is the unconditional love and acceptance of its children. Like that's a horrible comparison. Mm hmm. Yeah, and and what happens is the guys buy into that, and they think that oh man, like this is a family, but they don't realize that this is actually not a family because a family that grades you on your performance, and if you don't perform well, we kick you out of that family, is an abusive family. Mm. 
And so I think in my mind, I had allowed myself to go there and, uh, and I, I think I just have a different perspective about it now. And so it was painful. It hurt really bad. And, you know, I, I wrote that blog article and, um, I think a lot of people appreciated the honesty and appreciated the pulling back of the curtain a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and, and helping people see the humanity behind this, uh, this screen that we watch of the NFL that is, uh, is a false reality in a lot of ways. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's like a tele, it's a, it's sports, uh, entertainment, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was hard and it made me have to find out who am I? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I believe that we are more than what we do. I believe that who we are and what we were created for is so profound. And if we could see the value inside of each of us, we would see the storms that come into our lives as an opportunity for us to grow as opposed to something that is going to give us a life sentence to pain and depression. Mm. And so, but it, it takes work. And, and honestly, it was like a year before I felt normal again. Mm. And uh, it was gut-wrenching having to do some real soul-searching. And um, yeah, I, I think my hope is just that people would see the humanity behind players yeah. Uh, that most of them are really just trying to do the best that they can with what they have and uh, and to show a little compassion and grace on those guys. Yeah. Do you have uh, kind of a vendetta against the NFL in any way? Like, do you feel frustrated by that idea that they try to communicate this is family, this is what it's about? Like, do you feel like that's a fight that you need to take on or um, want to take on? Um. I think that it's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of unfortunate things in our world. Um, I, I do want people, I want, I want players to know that, um, going in, you, it's a business Mm -hmm. business. And I think that that's important for the, the welfare of, of any football player. Yeah, that's good. So, uh, let's, let's talk about becoming the book that you just recently wrote. Um, not that you're defined by the book that you just wrote, but tell us about it. Yeah. Um, it essentially takes the coaching philosophy of the Seahawks about focusing on the process and applies it to our lives and makes us grittier, makes us more resilient, uh, helps us not get blown out of the water when we inevitably are encountered with rejection of some type. Um, I, I say that it's loving the process to wholeness and how I define wholeness is giving up hope for a better past, relinquishing control for a perfect future, and then choosing joy and courage right where your feet are. And if you can have a mindset like that, you're going to be pretty powerful throughout your life. Mm. Um, and so a lot of it has to do with our identity and where do you get that from and in the first chapter, uh, I, I talk about the false, what I call false fathers, which are the things that we look to for identity and, and comfort. And the role of the father in any home is to impart identity, to impart unconditional love, 
when we don't feel like we get that, we go and we try and get it from all the other things that make us feel significant, like having a hot wife or being a professional football player or being a mother or getting straight A's, like whatever it is. I mean, there's a million things in the world that we rely on to make us feel like we matter. And so um, I think there's going to be a lot of people who hear their voice in the pages of the book. And I think more than anything, uh, I wrote it at a really raw time in my life uh, where I was having to do some real soul searching. And it helped me process the death of my identity in football. And what I found is that there's a lot of people who need a message like that because we don't even realize that we're building our lives on sand. Mm -hmm. And in a second, something could come and just absolutely blow us apart. And so we need to find out who we are before the storms hit. Mm. For those, for those potential readers or in our listeners too, what, how do you identify a false father? Like how, how do you know when you're leaning on something too heavily for your identity? What, what's that first initial moment where you can recognize that? I ask people, what's the thing that makes you feel most significant? Hmm. And that's it. That's I have a Super Bowl ring. That makes me feel significant. Right. And that's a horrible place to get a sense of significance. Mm. And if my value and the reason that people should listen to me is based on something like that, it's really, really easy to, it's the path of least resistance. Like we always have to fight against that. And so whatever that is for, for your listeners, have some honest, uh, conversation with yourself. Um, about where you may be putting too much of too much of your identity. Mm. That's good. That's really good. Um, well, you're open about your faith and um, speaking about your uh, your faith in Jesus Christ. And so, how does that tell us about how you use that as a? Um, how do you talk about that? And how do you, especially in the world of the NFL, did you? I guess first of all, and then now going forward, is that a component of? kind of your speaking circuit in the book and, um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a big part of who I am. Mm -hmm. I do a, a bunch of stuff in the faith community. I also do a bunch of stuff in the secular community. Um, and I think more than anything, all of us are looking for unconditional love mm -hmm. and we only change in the presence of unconditional love. And for a guy who grew up in church and who grew up in a situation that was full of a lot of shame and condemnation, when I actually had the humility to read and understand and seek out for myself uh, what the Bible has to say about God, I found that he was vastly different from what I had believed him to be for a very long time. Mm. Uh, my entire life, I thought he was this pissed off grandfather that was mostly irritated with me. Yeah. And who wants to serve a God like that? Mm. You know, like, of course, people are going to be like, well, I don't buy into that because they're thinking of who they think God is, is not accurate. And uh, I would always have conversations with one guy on the team and he was a dedicated atheist. And uh, I told him one time he was, you know, talking and telling me how wrong I was. And I told him, Hey, I just want you to know that I'm an atheist too. 
And so he thought about it for a second and he thought I was making fun of him and I wasn't. And I told him the God that you don't believe in is the same one that I don't believe Mm. in because you think that God is this angry person who's trying to hurt people. And I don't think that that's actually how it is. And if you actually checked it out for yourself, you would find that that's not what the Bible has to say either. Mm. And so, um, once I started to realize this loving father who loved me and accepted me and wanted the best for me in the midst of my mess, in the midst of me giving him all the reasons of the world to withdraw love from me, and he didn't, uh, it changed everything for me. And, and now I can walk into a situation and I don't have to worry about performing for people and all of us do that man gosh all of us when we walk into a room we want to perform we want to look look like we know what we're talking about and that we can play the role and and be the part and that's an exhausting cycle to be in yeah and until you're introduced to unconditional love um you're always going to be striving yeah that's good man so shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, right now, one of the current hot topics surrounding the NFL is just uh, the protests about um, basically how uh, African-American males are treated, um, you know, starting with uh, Kaepernick and then it's transitioned into where the Seahawks sat out against the Titans completely. You know, there's way more people who are kneeling. Um, I know you recently wrote a blog on that, but can you unpack your thoughts on on that whole process and what's going on there? Yeah. Um, I never saw any type of racism or injustice or inequality growing up. I mean, I just was never really, I didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got into the NFL into a room of mostly African Americans and I started listening to their stories and finding out that their experiences growing up were vastly different from my experiences growing up. And what, when, when Kaepernick first kneeled, I was offended by that as were a lot of people. And then I realized that the flag is a symbol that is subjective. Uh, to the military, it means one thing to somebody else. It means something else. Like, it's like, I'm a Christian, but, and I, I aspirationally try and live like Jesus. I am far from that. Uh, but for somebody who's not a Christian, I don't expect them to try and live like I do because they don't have the same ideals that I do. Mm. Anytime that we try and force our beliefs on anybody, that's going to be a slippery slope. And so I think most of the fighting that we're seeing right now is this, you need to believe what I believe about this. I want you to see the American flag the way that I see the American flag. And that's, that's the fight, is that we've got two groups of people who are fighting over this symbol that means different things to different people. And as far as like, the kneeling or standing or sitting what i know about processing pain is that there are a lot of guys who yeah they may have millions of dollars now 
but you have no idea. And it is so offensive for you to say that, you know, you've got millions of dollars and you should just be thankful. I had a guy walk up to me at church the other day and tell me those black guys should just be happy that they're here. God. Wow. And I, I wanted to wring the guy's neck. Yeah. And so I'm in the middle of signing autographs and I get into a fight with this guy <laughs> because I'm like, that is the most offensive, ignorant thing in the world to try and disqualify somebody's experience, to try to say that your pain doesn't matter, mm-hmm. that you should just be thankful. It's horrible. And so if you want people to to work through their pain, because that's what a lot of these guys who are kneeling are doing, they're saying that I'm working through a lot of pain. The only way that you help people walk through their pain is to empathize with them, mm-hmm. to say, I'm so sorry. I, I understand why you're doing this. How can I help? The protests will go away after that. But it takes some, uh, it takes some humility and it takes some honesty of, man, help me understand your experience so that I can help. Yeah. No, that's good, man. Where do you see that? I mean, this is an impossible question, I suppose, but where do you see this protest, this anthem protest going from here? Because, um, I don't know. Do you have any ideas? What, like, how does it, not that the core issue gets resolved, but how does, um, yeah. What, we well, have to ask the question, what is the purpose of a protest? Yeah. It's to bring awareness to an issue. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that it's a protest against America, and it's not. It's right. about injustice. It's about police brutality. And for anybody that doesn't think that police brutality is happening, uh, you should go watch The 7-5 the seven on Netflix um, because it's unbelievable. Like, that is the truth. It, Police brutality does happen. Um, But because there isn't a defined success, uh, you have to ask the question of, you know, how long is this going to go for? And and I don't have an answer to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that there's their protest worked because it's now in the forefront of all of our minds. Um, But I don't know how long it should last for or, or what. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Right. That's good. So, uh, we are a podcast about Seattle. Um, and so we've got a couple of Seattle based questions for you. Um, you were here during the Seattle boom. Uh, I think we met around 2009 or so you and I, um, and yeah, I mean, you've, you've experienced where, you could leave from Mercer Island and you could drive downtown and it takes 10 minutes. And now it's like, you know, well, good luck with that. Uh, so, yeah. So what, what does it look like? What did it look like when you first got to Seattle? Um, what have you seen the growth or what, what, what has the growth done, uh, in your eyes and, and how do you feel about that? Um, I think it's exciting. I mean, people are moving to Seattle because it's a gem. Gosh, I didn't even know about Seattle growing up. Mm. I grew up 2,000 miles away from Seattle where it's hot all year long. And then I moved to this like most beautiful place in the world. And I go through one summer in Seattle and I'm like, I want to die here. Mm. <laughs> this is yeah. amazing. And unfortunately, the rest of the world figured out about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
everybody's moving in and um, it's exciting, but I'm sure that there's a lot of people who are frustrated about that because it was, it was their hidden gems. Like this is our home and now it's, it's kind of a world city. Yeah. Uh, it's exciting because jobs are coming and people who own real estate, like that's an amazing experience for them uh, and setting them up for long-term success and wealth growth. Uh, it has changed a lot. And, um, I honestly, my wife and I, we kick around the idea of moving back there. We just, we loved it up there. Yeah. We live in Dallas now, but, um, yeah, it's a remarkable place that has changed a lot and I'm sure it will continue to change and grow as Amazon takes over the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. You traveled a lot for obviously for football. What can you pinpoint what sets Seattle apart in your mind from other major cities? Um, I mean, the culture is so unique there and, uh, yeah, I mean, we didn't get to spend, you know, a whole lot of time, like getting to know the people of all of these cities that we were in. We're mostly locked up in our hotel rooms, but, um, my time in Seattle was one of the greatest, some of the greatest years of my life. What's, uh, what's your favorite restaurant? Like, what do you miss most food wise in Seattle? Man. Oh my gosh. There's so many restaurants we miss. Um, Chinooks, El Gaucho, Metropolitan Grill. Um, there's a few places in Bellevue that my wife and I would always go to. We love Den Tai Fung. Oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. Eat there every single day. Yeah. Not too much Den Tai Fung in, uh, Dallas, I would imagine. No. Yeah. Uh, there was a sushi place called Ginza in Bellevue that we would always go to. Um, and I'm blanking on in the name, Pagacha. Pagacha in Bellevue is awesome. Cool. That's great. So we're going to do a real quick, this is this is something new. Uh, we're going to do a lightning round of pointless questions. Uh, and it's just whatever pops at the top of your head, uh, answer it as fast as you possibly can. Um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up uh, a few questions after that. Sound like a plan? That sounds like a plan. All right. So uh, this is something I've always thought. Do NFL players play fantasy football? Yes, but they can't gamble on it. Okay. That do, makes sense. do they draft themselves? Absolutely. Nice. <laughs> All right. Have you ever misplaced your Super Bowl ring? I left it at a speaking engagement one time, and the guy had to ship it back to me, which Ooh. was terrifying. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, you don't get another one, I don't ends, think. Ends up on eBay. Uh, yeah. Who is the funniest player on the Seattle Seahawks? And it could be during your time. Maybe they've left, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Steve Hauschka was hilarious. Um, let's see. Michael Bennett's funny. Marshawn is funny. Nice. Yeah. I'm inserting this one. Does Marshawn talk? He doesn't talk to the media, but is he talk a uh, talker to the players? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. He's okay. a lovable guy in the locker room. Who do you think wins the Super Bowl this year? Oh man, I have no idea. I hope not the Patriots. <laughs> uh is there another sport that you want to play? Um, uh, another sport I want to play. Nah, not really. I mean, I like working out and stuff, but, uh, you know, I, I think I'd like to get into golf just because that seems like what everyone's supposed to do, but maybe I shouldn't care about what everybody's supposed to do. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There you go. And then lastly, um, are you done playing football? Uh, it sure seems like it. Yeah. Uh, I'd have to put on uh, quite a bit of weight to make that happen again. Okay. 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 I've got one more. Uh, can you tell a story of the time you laughed the hardest? Of a time I laughed the hardest? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. 
Uh, it was 2012. We were in Detroit getting ready to play the Lions. And on Saturday, you have to go and have a walkthrough uh, before the game. And so we're on the offensive bus, and Marshawn is messing with Russell. <laughs> and Marshawn kept trying to get Russell to say for shizzle. <laughs> and so, like, you know, you put Marshawn Lynch and Russell Wilson into a room. They're just very different guys. And so, like, Marshawn constantly being like, hey, yo, Russ, say for shizzle, dog. <laughs> and Russell's like, Marshawn, stop it. I'm not going to say for shizzle. <laughs> this is a hilarious Oh, moment. man, that's, that's great. awesome. Um, so for years, you knew where you would be on Sunday afternoon. And so when the Seahawks kick off on Sundays, where are you? Are you watching the game? Are you with your family? Um, yeah, I mean, Sundays are different now. I mean, I travel and speak so much that usually the weekends I'm, I'm doing some type of an event. I think I've got like 15 or 20 events from now until the end of the year. Um, if I'm just like hanging around the house, I'll, I'll have a football game on, but I'm not, I'm not like crazy invested into the game. Um, but if it's on, I'll watch it. And I mean, I, I cheer for my friends now. Yeah. I still got a bunch of guys all over the league that are still playing and I want those guys to do well. So that's great. All right. So our final questions, um, two questions. One, what is your biggest concern for Seattle as we move forward? And then also what's your biggest hope for Seattle? Um, I think that they, that answer would probably be one of the same. My biggest concern is that with the influx of people coming in, that it would lose who they are. And my biggest hope is that they wouldn't lose who they are. Mm. Um, and who is Seattle? What's that? Who, who is Seattle? What is Seattle? I guess. Yeah. 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 The identity of Seattle and, um, and that we would be accepting and inviting of, of people coming in, um, and just that we would stay true to who they are. So, gotcha. It's awesome. That's what I have to say. Well, Clint, it's clear from chatting with you that you're a man of depth, and um, and you're firmly planted on things that aren't built on sand. So, yeah, we've appreciated our time chatting with you. And yeah. Best of luck Great going forward. Yeah, for sure. And best of luck. Uh, we would love to give away one of your books. So, um, if you share this on Facebook, uh, the first person to share, we will give a book. So there you go. There we go. Sounds great. Um, Clint, thank you, man. Uh, best of luck on everything. And yeah, look forward to chatting with you soon. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cool. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It totally helps out our ratings and gets this podcast in front of other people just like you that care about Seattle. And remember, the future of Seattle is in your hands.